0: Today's episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and favorite app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. They don't sell tickets for political conventions, do they? No, thank God. All right, uh, go to SeatGeek.com/slash-bs to start using SeatGeek, and don't forget to download the free SeatGeek app. And a promo code BS SeatGeek sends you twenty dollars upon your first purchase. Today's episode is also brought to you by Simply Safe. No better way to protect your home. Simply Safe has no long-term contracts. And the best 24 7 protection possible for just $15 a month. Not bad. Uh, visit simplysafebuild.com to get my 10% off discount. Last but not least, go to the ringer.com to sign up for our new newsletter that launches on Monday. Don't forget to subscribe to the Ringers Channel 33 podcast feed for podcasts from Andy Greenwell, Juliet Litman, Chris Ryan, and more. And we're off.
1: Yeah. It's
0: Tupac big it? at Holy Cross.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were big Tupac.
0: Big Holy Cross week here on Huge. the uh, BS podcast. We uh, Joe House and I talked about Holy Cross somehow sneaking into the.
1: I heard you guys
0: to the madness, and now John Favreau here, former
1: it's all Holy Cross,
0: former Holy Cross, uh, former Obama speechwriter, but more importantly, a Holy Cross <laughs> graduate.
1: 2003. Yeah.
0: Living in a you were that was really the last decent run for Holy Cross Hoops. The, that was last the Ralph time. Willard era, the Ralph Willard era, very I close. Actually,
1: three years I was there uh, 01, 02, and 03, we made the tournament, and then every time lost in heartbreaking fashion yeah. in round one, yeah. yeah and blowing and leads each in time. 2003, we were up against Kansas, and I remember we were like leading by five with like 10 or 11 minutes left. And it was just pandemonium at the, at the school. Yeah. And we didn't even, we almost didn't even care. We were just like, <laughs> the fact that we got that close, you know.
0: We never had that moment where we just, that one upset that I think would have gotten the momentum going and it just never happened. I know. So when you graduated, what happened next in your life? How did you end up in the White House?
1: So I graduated and I had done, Holy Cross has like this DC internship program. Yeah. Uh, junior year. So I went and I was an intern for John Kerry because he was my uh, home state senator. Yeah. And it was right when he was preparing his presidential run. So I ended up sitting and interning with um, his communications director, speechwriter. And I thought it was a great job. And when I went back to Holy Cross, I basically bugged him every single month. uh, The communications director, this guy named David Wade, for for a job on the campaign, any job. Uh he didn't call me back until the night before graduation at Holy Cross. And he was like, So uh good news is I think we can get you on the campaign as an assistant. Uh bad news is uh we're not gonna be able to pay you anything at all. Mm. And I was like and I'm just like, there's like a pause on the line. And he's like, eh, I'm just, I'm just fucking with you. It's <laughs> So, but it wasn't much. So I went there and I was, uh, I moved to DC like two weeks after I graduated. And I was a press assistant uh, on the campaign. And then when Kerry looked like he was losing to Howard Dean. Yeah. They needed a deputy speechwriter. No one would join the Kerry campaign. At that point, it was a sinking ship. They, uh, they didn't have money to pay a real speechwriter. They were paying me like twenty thousand dollars a year, and so they were like, you know what? Let's just uh, promote Favs and make him deputy speechwriter because this thing's probably going to be over anyway. Yeah. So they did, and then Kerry wins the the, the uh, primary, and uh, and so I was his deputy all through the all through the general. Now, when Kerry loses, um, at one point during that campaign, Robert Gibbs, who was my first boss, uh, had gone to had quit the campaign. And went to go work for Barack Obama. So Obama wins the Senate seat in 04. Kerry loses the presidency. And Gibbs reaches out and says, you know, Obama's never had a speechwriter before. And I'm trying to convince him that now he's in the Senate. He's going to need a speechwriter. And he's sort of resistant to the idea. But why don't you come have breakfast with him?
0: Because he liked writing a lot of his stuff, right?
1: Yeah, no, he wrote the 2004 convention speech by himself. Yeah. And he didn't think he needed a speechwriter. And so, so we have, we have this uh, this breakfast meeting, Obama's first week in the Senate, and it's like a really easy interview. He's, you know, and he's just, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? Why'd you get into politics? All this kind of stuff. And at the end, he's like, you know, uh, I don't think I need a speechwriter, but Gibbs keeps telling me I do. And you seem nice enough, so let's try this out. Wow. <laughs>
0: yeah. And that was it. That was it. When did you think he had a chance to actually become the president? Like what year? Oh six? Oh six. Oh five yeah. and
1: oh six. I mean it was funny, I I had this bet with, with Robert Gibbs, um, because he was like, you know, Hillary Clinton's gonna be the nominee in oh eight and I said, I just don't think I don't think the party's gonna go with her. Yeah. And he's like, Well who do you think who do you think it's gonna be? And he's like, You think it's gonna be our old friend John Kerry? You think it's gonna be John Edwards? I'm like, No, I don't think it's gonna be those guys either. I just think I'm like, What about our guy? And, and, uh, Gibbs is like, there's no way he's going to run at this point. He just got here. It's not going to happen. And I'm like, I just, I know that Hillary won't be the nominee. And, um, and Gibbs is like, I will bet you a dinner of Kobe beef that, <laughs> that Hillary Clinton is the nominee of our party. Wow. He's still not paid that bet yet. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. After eight years? I know it's, it's bullshit. Um,
0: when you think about it, like, he didn't have a ton of experience no. before he became the president which is the big thing everyone's using against Trump right now? Right. Not that there's not a million different <laughs> things to use against, but I mean, in the history of politics, there's a lot of people who didn't have a ton of experience that yeah. kind of snuck into the White House. When when you were when he got, actually got in, and when I when I interviewed him for GQ when he talked about that first year, you think you know what you're doing, but um do you remember feeling overwhelmed? Those first 6 months?
1: I felt a little overwhelmed, but It was actually a little bit easier for me because on the campaign there was, I mean, speech writing is all about how many people you have with writing, right? Like the more writers you have, the easier your job is. And in the campaign there was first just me and then me and two other people and then a couple more. And then by the time I got to the White House, I had a team of speech writers. And so the workload wasn't as bad as it was in the campaign. So you're like kind of uh, sprucing up other
0: people's first drafts and like that I was doing more sometimes. editing, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so that part was better. The problem with the White House, I mean, the, the, the real challenge in the White House is not that you're working around the clock, it's that you can't, you have no, you can't plan any time. You can't plan a weekend, you can't plan, any, because if something goes on in the world, the president has to comment on it, yeah. right? And so, you know, you're you talking be,
0: about you couldn't plan anything. Right, no, yeah. I
1: mean, it was like, I could be out at a bar, <laughs> And suddenly something horrible happens and then that's it. I'm done. I'm back in the White House and they're told two in the morning. And that's
0: why you didn't have alcohol the entire time. The you whole worked time there. I was sober. You're sober. It's right. amazing. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, no, I mean, it was it, I remember walking into the White House when we all got there that first week. And there was a moment where Obama invited sort of all the communications press writing staff who had mostly been on the campaign into the Oval. And we all sort of walked around the Oval together looking like, what are we all doing here? And it wasn't like we're here with the president of the United States. It's like we're here with Barack yeah. Obama, who we've known for the last couple of years. And who just, how did we all get here? What the hell is going on? Did you see, when, when did
0: you notice people just changing the way they acted around him? Not the inner circle people, but just in general
1: people. Fairly quickly once he was elected. What didn't happen before? No, I think in the camp because he's just such a like laid back person, yeah, right? I mean the whole like the kind of aura of celebrity that grew around him, yeah, was invisible to most of us during the campaign because we were working so hard, oh, yeah, you're in it, so it's like you didn't have time to sit there and step back and think, you know what's going on he's he's the most one of the most famous people in the world right now because you were just trying to get through day to day, yeah, so there was almost never mo- and that was pretty much true through the white house there was almost never a moment where you could step at step back and appreciate or sort of sit in awe at all the things that were going on
0: you were on my radar pretty quickly because i was like the youngest successful holy cross person (laughs) in that list they have with like clarence thomas i was was like the last year it's it's, it's you clarence thomas
1: and chris (laughs) matthews (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was nobody crew.
0: after me, so I kind of was like, "This is great." I'm like the I'm like the young blood, and then all of a sudden you popped in. I'm like, "What the hell?" Oh three! Now I feel like a dinosaur. Um,
1: but you stayed there how long? Five years? Uh, yeah, I stayed in the White House five years. So I left in March of 2013.
0: When you, when you're in the campaign, like right now, like yeah. trying to get elected, and he's giving speech after speech after speech after speech. Like how many are you writing a day?
1: So you write a stump speech. Which is the speech that the candidate delivers at almost every event. But then he,
0: does he he ad libs a little bit off that, right? So yeah. it's not the exact same every time ad
1: libs off of it. And usually what you do something called a topper or yeah. an insert so that you have the candidate respond to the news of the day. Yeah. And then just goes into the stump. Right. Um, and hits his like little touch points for what the campaign's
0: about. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then there are policy speeches so if he's rolling out his healthcare plan or rolling out a foreign policy plan, then you've got to do those speeches. So that happens.
0: So if you're Trump, do you have a speech like, today's the speech, I, I sound like a racist? Let's write that one.
1: <laughs> I think he's got that one memorized. <laughs> yeah, that's it, it. Yeah, he's got... No, I, th- I mean, he, he's an interesting case because he doesn't have a speechwriter. Yeah. So he said, which I believe. I actually believe that, too. Oh, I, think, I totally believe I think, it. He,
0: I think he ad-libs this whole thing, and he's, he's actually really good at it, as long as you're not listening to what he's saying.
1: No, he, he, he has the whole thing down. Yeah. Trump, my theory on Trump is he is um, a candidate who has basically just like what you'd, what you'd get if you had someone who just watched cable news all day. Right. And, and specifically Fox and listening to right wing radio. Like so if he knows, cable TV created a candidate that had him. a baby. Be, yeah. Because he knows just enough. It's all surface level. Yeah. It's all bad news. Right. It's all about how like everyone in Washington of both parties uh, is a bunch of crooks and liars. Yeah. It's all punditry. It's all talking about poll numbers. And this is like what he does. He's he's better at political punditry and like reciting poll numbers and reciting like who's up and who's down and all that kind of stuff. than he is about talking issues. And you can see like in the debate last night, every time you press him, it's like it's like an he's like an inch deep and a mile wide. His knowledge about just about everything. So if you press him more than like five or 10 seconds on a given issue, he he can't because he doesn't know.
0: Is I mean, is Bernie Sanders that much different, though? In terms of being a surface guy?
1: I think he's not. I think he's appearing that way because he's... I mean, Bernie case is a Bernie uh, Sanders is a great case in message discipline. Yeah. Because he literally brings everything back to his Wall Street millionaires, billionaires message. Yeah. The reason I think he actually probably knows more is someone who's been in the Senate that long. Knows all the details of all these issues. It would be
0: impossible not to.
1: Yeah, it's almost one of the problems of being in the Senate or being in Washington that long is that you're so in the weeds on so many different policy issues that when you go out and speak publicly, like you start speaking in acronyms and you get really boring and all that. So it's actually a credit to Sanders that he's able to distill a very, you know, powerful message, even though he has probably been like passing bills with all kinds of acronyms all these years.
0: You wrote a good piece, I think a week or two weeks ago, about Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um, just about, you kind of flip the narrative a little, because it just seems like people have spent the last eight, nine years figuring out reasons why she should not be the president. Right. And this whole other narrative has come out. And the way she's judged is interesting. You know, like, my, wa- my wife will, my wife hates the way she dresses. Right. And she can't get past it. And it brings it in. And every time she gives a speech, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, gee. And it's just people just nitpick 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 cuz she's been in our lives since 1990 what one yeah the first time and it's just people are just seem tired of her.
1: Well, it's a, I sort of came around to that because I was one of those people obviously. I was yeah. on the Obama campaign and I had only seen Hillary You guys were much... trying to beat her. We were trying to beat her and it and primary campaigns as we're seeing now in some ways become mm-hmm. even more intense than a general election because In a general election, you're fighting over issues because you have such different views. In a primary campaign, you're trying to stand out and win based on personalities and leadership style. So it it becomes more personal and nasty. And uh, that was certainly the case with Obama and Clinton in 08. Yeah. But we sort of, we all saw her as horribly calculating and would do anything for political reasons and stuff like that. And. The more I got to know her and the more I watched her, you realize like when she is sort of cautious in the way she speaks. Right. But when you've been in politics for as long as she has. Yeah. And you've been attacked as much as she has and you've been betrayed as much as she has. And you've had people leak things about you and, you know, investigate you and all that kind of stuff. You're gonna be a cautious person, yeah, right. Like you're not gonna just. Barack Obama didn't really have anything to lose in '07 and 08. and so he kind of say what he wanted to say, you know. And he's like, much more cautious than he used to be. I think that's. I think once once you uh, come come into power, once you're in the White House, once you're in office, you start becoming a little bit more cautious because you realize that the words you say, the decisions you make, really have pretty large ramifications, so there's a, sort of a natural caution that's built in, yeah. and I think that happened to her, and the tough part is if you've been in Washington as long as she has, you almost have to unlearn all that for a campaign. Um, but she's, you know, by far the most qualified candidate. By far, and that, I mean, that's, I was saying in the in my column that I, I didn't work with her very closely in the White House, but I would see her at cabinet meetings, I would see her in other meetings, and she was just, she was by far the most impressive cabinet member, and, you know, the president would like go around the table and ask everyone about their issues. Yeah. And then he would ask Hillary about everyone else's issues in addition to her, because when we were trying to pass health care, she had tried to do it in 1993. And so he's like, all right, Hillary, what do you think about this? And she just had all these lessons and all these ideas. And she's just a really smart person. She's well prepared. And she works her ass off, too. Yeah, like she just and every and that's what everyone who's who's met with her think and Republicans in the Senate Used to think that about her too. When she got to the Senate, all these Republicans hated her. She got to the Senate, and then one by one, they'd be like, "You know, I worked with Hillary Clinton on this thing, and she was pretty great." Now here's where everybody who doesn't
0: like Hillary is saying, "Yeah, but you left out the part that Clinton, are, Clintons are liars. <laughs> all they do is lie. All they do is What's, lie. I mean, they've been caught in some in some pickles."
1: Yeah. Well, look, it's I tough. think it's 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 tough, and
0: the reality is, there's not a great choice this year. And sometimes that happens. I was saying that to, I forget who I was talking to about somebody, but it's, it's like one of those sports years where a team just wins the title and everybody just kind of looks around and goes, wow, that didn't really feel like a champion. (laughs) Like I, I guess somebody had to win And that. I mean, especially on the Republican side, I think everybody's kind of looking around waiting and waiting and waiting. It's like, no, these are the guys. These are all of our candidates right here.
1: It's hard to recognize that at the end of the day, politics is is about alternatives right and it's like you're not i mean we had a very exciting election in 2000 in 2008 and everyone was very inspired about barack obama right yeah but also barack obama did not come into office and then fix everything with his magic wand no (laughs) right and everyone's oh we're so disappointed now but you know what it's like things aren't perfect and it's not easy to fix everything and change takes time and all this kind of stuff and so Sometimes you have an alternative and, and when you go through the ringer of a campaign, right, like you're not going to look too perfect at the end or it's very difficult to. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, OK, who's a better who's just who's a better option here? Right. And it's not always going to be inspiring or exciting. But that, that doesn't mean it's any less important is what I think, you know, like the, the difference between a Hillary Clinton winning this election and just about anyone on the Republican side is enormous enormous because even someone who looks appears fairly moderate like a Marco Rubio would be the most conservative right wing president we've ever had in the history of the country. By far. By far. Kasich though. Kasich seems it's I, I get in trouble for this. It seems like the most normal of all of them. I right? know and every time I tweet about like Kasich seems normal and Kasich seems like a guy get I, mad. Yeah, they get mad because I get I mean I learn more about him. He has like an extremely pro life record, like more yeah. so than many of the candidates. A lot of people my girlfriend's from Ohio and her family's in politics too, and they say, Oh, he's very he's very, very conservative. He's not as popular in Ohio as people think he is. Like but he's but most people will say he's a good man. Right. He's a good man, he's a nice guy, he's he's not as, you know, politically craven as some of these people. So I watched that show, The Circus on Showtime. Yeah. And uh, earmuffs HBO, and uh, <laughs>
0: they had you know, they're they're kind of flying around and talking to all these different candidates, and they're catching them. And these, you know, they're not studio interviews, sometimes it'll just be the guy standing backstage and they talk to him for five minutes. And Kasich seems normal, like he could be here now, and we'd be talking to him, and it'd be like somebody's dad or something.
1: And those, he's the only one out of all of them who seems kind of normal. Those are the people. Those are the people that you want in politics, right? And it's also, I don't think that's just like a good way to act because it's like morally right. It's also smart politics. Yeah. If you're getting into it to just, I mean, I remember when um, we were losing to Clinton in the fall of 2007. Right. Pretty badly. And Obama sort of gathered us all around and he said, look, uh, I want to win this nomination. I think I can be a better, pre- a good president. I think I can be a better president than her. But at the end of the day, if I lose this, I'll go back home to Chicago, I'll raise my kids, I have a wonderful wife, and I'll be happy and I'll yeah. live my life. I don't need this for myself. I just I think I would do a good job in it. And because he had that attitude, he was willing to be himself and say whatever he came to his mind and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's why he won. Yeah. You know? And I think when you get so wrapped up in Worrying about every single thing you say and how it's going to be perceived, then that's when you get in trouble because that's when you start looking phony. That's the Rubio problem. That is the ru- That is that is who Marco Rubio is. And, Rubio, and who, I, is there
0: a normal person in there or is he just he's no one so knows. inside his own head he He looks know. like
1: one of those people who has been planning a run for presidency for decades and has laid every single piece in place and is constantly nervous that what he's saying is is going to be perceived the wrong way or he's going to piss off this constituency or that or not get this Trump vote. You know, I mean, it's y- you can see the anxiety when he's on stage at the debate that like the wheels are turning in his mind and he's just not sure what he's supposed to say next.
0: I don't know, I'm not positive what the debates are supposed to accomplish because it's a totally unnatural interaction. And somebody like Trump, who's a performer, Yes, he's such a better performer than anyone else who's on stage. And he's just blowing everyone away in these debates until they finally started coming back at him. But those
1: first couple ones, he was just being a bully and it worked. Trump has realized what most candidates, including uh, my old boss, Barack Obama, never realized, which is that they are complete performances. These debates. Yeah. Right. I mean, Obama was terrible in debates um, for a long time. He got better during the primary the more he did them. And then he was why was he terrible he was because he He's just thought, overthinking it, he thought they were on the level, yeah, and he told us that he goes, I thought that we you'd get up there and you'd debate issues with other people,
0: and it's and it's pro wrestling and it's pro wrestling, you're
1: grabbing the mic and you're yelling at stephanie McMahon and right you're getting and you the have, crowd, going. and the way you have to the way that you're taught to answer a question in a debate is soundbite first main message and then you sort of go backwards right so it's not like you'd answer a real question where you'd build a, you'd build a logical argument from beginning to end yeah. which is what obama does he's a professor, lawyer right uh in a debate you just you just yell scream you ignore the questions it's it's wwf that's why marco that's why you're losing <laughs> it's like your opener that's I mean, why Ted
0: Cruz is a liar. Okay, here's my point on that. And but that, that's gone.
1: like Trump the pundit again, too, right? Yeah. Like his best moments in debate, in his debate, in the debates, are when he just says what everyone on cable's been saying anyway. Like you're at the end of the stage, Jeb, because you suck. <laughs>
0: that <laughs> and, and like, that's one of the few defensible things about what Trump's done these last few months is. It, the debates are ludicrous anyway. They are pro wrestling and everybody kind of danced around it. And Trump was the first one who was like, This is pro wrestling. Right. I'm just, I'm just, gonna, just start gonna start go insulting everyone and that's and that's how you win this. Yeah. And it though his messages are basically like just these big black and white headline this, that, this, you're a liar, you're a jerk, you're losing. Low energy. You low energy. And he's just and it's really tough. Like poor Jeb Bush, he just he didn't know what
1: to do. <laughs> Je- well Jeb is just—he looked like a candidate from another era, you know. And yeah. someone had written this too, but he, like, the last time he had campaigned was, you know, a decade ago maybe, and so he'd been out of politics for so long that he didn't realize how much it had changed. And so he still thought that people were having debates like they they used to back in the day, and he he was so not prepared for what Trump was. No, uh, we're gonna call Dan Pfeiffer, your
0: old yes, your old buddy. Uh, we're going to take a break to talk about our buddies at Betterment. If you're Danny Ainge, Celtics GM, the best way to invest in your future is trading two rapidly declining future Hall of Famers to a team with a crippling cap situation and no young talent. In an exchange, you receive multiple unprotected first-round draft picks. That is investing in your future. For everyone else, the best way to invest for your future is Betterment. It's the automated investing service that provides personalized advice based on your financial goals, then builds and automatically manages a customized portfolio for each goal. Save yourself time and money and do it for a fraction of the cost of traditional investment services. Here's how easy it is to invest with Betterment. Link your bank account or roll over your 401 or IRA, and you're ready to roll. Betterment, already managing billions of dollars for over 100,000 customers. You could be next. Get up to six months of free automated investing and more information when you go to betterment.com slash bs. Betterment investing made better. All right, we're calling Dan. Um, so if you had to, if you had to bet who's going to win the election right now, you'd bet Hillary. I'd bet Hillary. I think I would
1: too. I'd bet I. At this point, because it's Hillary and probably Trump or Cruz, I think it's a <laughs> Trump I think, or Cruz. We it's are down to Trump. Yes. The most hated man in Washington versus one of the most hated men in America. <laughs> it's
0: unbelievable. That's are we a, sure Trump's not gonna win?
1: Uh I, I feel pretty good now. There was a couple months where I was a little worried, but his approval ratings in the last couple like it's sort of hit a critical mass at this point how bad he is, and I think he's his approval ratings nationally are dropping pretty fast. Alright. But I don't take I don't think we should take him lightly. I mean I'm not, I've I'm never not been in night, I've never been in that camp.
0: Is Dan on? Yes. Hey Bill. Hey, you're on with uh, me and Favs. Hey, Fifer. Perfect. Uh, We were just wondering if if Trump could actually win. What is your take?
2: He can win, yeah. I mean, once you're on the ballot, anything can happen. And (laughs) I would say he's probably, uh, if it comes down to Trump and Cruz, Trump is more likely to win than Cruz is.
0: I actually would agree with that. Me too. I think Cruz is unwinnable.
2: Yeah. He's He's the least likable candidate to run for president in modern times.
0: My favorite was when he his he tried to hug his daughter that time and the daughter was just recoiling. Like <laughs> yeah. at no point
1: have I ever tried to hug my kids where they recoiled backwards. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> that kid was channeling the American people.
1: The the best story I heard about Cruz was when he was in college in his dorm room they were have they had a poker game and obviously it was like you know, illegal against the rules and Cruz went down like two thousand dollars he owed that he didn't have so instead of paying what he owed to the rest of the people who were playing the poker game he went to the ra and told on everyone else that they were playing poker in the dorms no yeah that's a true story a <laughs> reporter told me that
0: there so there is no way like this all like the 1976 republican convention when they basically decided it on the floor. I mean, that can happen in 2016. I think that's why yes. Rubio's staying in the race, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, I think I think that's why he's staying in the race. But I don't I think it's very hard. I think one of if it, Trump and Cruz are very close in delegates and neither has a majority, they could give it to Cruz. If they which they will hate because the Republican establishment hates Cruz. Right, almost as much as the rest of the, of the American people. Yeah. So I think if they don't, if it's not Trump or Cruz, it will be like some, you know, white knight, and they will be white, um, like, <laughs> like 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 Romney or Paul Ryan, um, because it's hard to be like, hey, you can, you know, you were behind by a thousand delegates, Marco Rubio. Let's just give it to you. Like right. That that seems really hard to make. Yeah,
0: mean, Paul Ryan is actually, you know, you can bet on the Republican convention, obviously. Joe House and I lost on Rubio. We had him at like plus 650 and we, yeah. and we that fell apart. But Paul Ryan, there are odds for Paul Ryan, which I thought was interesting because he's not running.
1: If they give the nomination to Paul Ryan when Trump or Cruz have the most delegates but just didn't hit the number 1237... The Trump supporters and crew supporters will burn Cleveland to the ground. <laughs> <Right>. I mean, <laughs> that is very literal. <laughs> and Trump's
0: and Trump supporters, like there's been stories this week about it's it's kind of edging toward a little violent.
2: Have you seen the video of the like 70 year old man who just like sucker punched the protester on his way out of the? Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's, there's like actual violence that happens there. Yeah.
0: there. There's no chance like America. I mean, is there? I'm going to rephrase. Is there a chance America might just lose its mind this summer during this whole thing? (sighs) I hope
2: not. Maybe America has lost its mind and we're just figuring it out right now.
0: Because there's a counter to this that just says, hey, in 1964, everyone thought the Republican Party was going in the shitter and Goldwater got annihilated. And then four years later, Nixon. So... I, I, I don't, I've never bought the narrative that this is it for the Republican Party and they're done and it's over and, and this is going to fall apart and it's a new world order. Like four years from now, it might just be back with a different candidate.
1: I
2: totally. And agree totally. With they're in 2005, right after Bush won. Like a couple of reporters wrote a book that was called The Emerging Republican Majority. Yeah. Um, how they win forever. And Carr wrote that it all figured out. And then the book came out like one month before the Democrats swept the house and the senate 2006. So like every time a party we think that it's the end of a party, they find a way to they figure it out somehow or find the right candidate and get lucky.
1: I mean, if if you had a Marco Rubio who didn't come across as so phony or a John Kasich who was just a little bit more charismatic, you'd have someone who could win the presidency.
0: Maybe the answer is John Kasich should, should drink more before the debates. Maybe just have like one vodka tonic. Just needs to loosen up a tiny bit. Just a little more be,
1: gregarious. He must be the only one who's not drinking at those <laughs> debates.
2: I'm so convinced he like naps between questions because he always seems surprised every time they ask him. He's he, just like, oh, yeah. He's got like that weird bed head. Like he was asleep right before
0: that. Maybe he's hibernating until the next question. All right. So let's say you guys are right out of college. You're desperate for a job. Fab's just told a story. I was working for like 20 grand. Um, and the Trump campaign targets both of you. And now you're working for Trump. You needed a job. It's okay. a good break in the business. What do you guys do to try to get Trump to actually win this election? What would you tell him? If he just looked at you and was like, I trust you guys. I want you guys to help me
1: win this election. What would you tell him? I mean, I look, I, I, I did this a uh, horrible fantasy a couple of weeks ago i wrote a um i wrote a pretends trump speech for the daily beast oh god uh i look i think his his core message of you know economic populism tinged with some nationalism right is has brought on a lot of supporters right like he that that's why he is where he is i i i think that all of the overt racism and bigotry yeah (laughs) and the not not tamping down the violence and the saying crazy shit and the, the the you know dick measuring stuff like I don't think that's helping him like I think that gets him news cycles but I think if he really wants to get a news cycle there's a way to do it and be flamboyant without quite going as far as he's going you know so I think I think if you're in that campaign I mean you could actually see this last night in the debate he they called it the civil debate, even though it was almost just as batshit crazy as the others. Yeah. Um, but he he toned it down a little bit because I think he knew that he had gone too far in the prior debate and that it was probably hurting him in the polls. What do you think, Dan?
2: Well, I think he should. I mean, one thing is like psychological warfare. Like the way he wins is if he's running against Hillary Clinton, is that like Obama's voters do not turn out right because these are people who have really only. Voted when Obama was on the ballot um, and didn't turn out in midterm elections. Were you know were either not re- too young to vote or didn't get involved with Kerry. And so what he just needs to make Hillary Clinton seem so lame and boring that he that they're not going to turn out. And like bringing up all, which I think he's going to do this, which is like bringing up all the old stuff um, from the Clinton years will be part of that. And I do think that if he uh, he will be most candidates when they either run to the right or left in the primary, and then it's really hard to move back to the middle because you you know you change your position, the press kills you for it, and the interest groups on your side come back and say, "Wait, you told us this." Trump just doesn't give a shit. Like he doesn't care if Politifact gives him like like seven thousand you know bad fact checks or whatever else. He will probably he just goes out completely pivots on immigration and seems less scary, and then just like gets inside Hillary Clinton's head the rest of the time, he has a shot. I mean, it may be the demographics make it impossible, but you know, any like the thing is, we all say Trump can't win, but we're all the all the same people who say Trump can't win the general election, the same ones who said he couldn't win the primary. So,
1: yeah, who really knows? He, he has one message against Hillary Clinton that he already has delivered a couple weeks ago. She's been there forever. She's not. Gonna, she hasn't fixed anything. Why would you? Why would you put her in there to to, to fix things now? Yeah, and it does seem. It's, like, it's actually not that radical, you know.
0: Yeah, and if he basically said, "Hey, the last the last twenty five years, this, or thirty years, this country's been run by Bushes and Clintons. Yeah, and Obama's an extension of the Clintons, and it's time for a change." Like, I think that would resonate. Well, with and he's going to say, and
1: I know this. I used to take money from them, and then I own them. Oh yeah, and, they, and they had to come to my wedding because I gave them money, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of relationship I had. That's the kind of people they are. That's it's what he's going to say. Yeah, he
2: also does this like really devious thing where he's just like makes these accusations, of implication where he's like, "and I'll be the one will beat Hillary Clinton if she can run." I mean, I don't even know. Given all the legal stuff she did, she may not even be eligible. Who knows?
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> right. So
2: it's like, yeah, it's so good.
1: Well, he already has this set up too because. Uh, He's going to say that if nothing comes of this email investigation, well, Obama's Justice Department protected her. Otherwise, she would have been indicted and in jail. Yeah, that's going to be that's that's going to be the when Hillary wins the presidency, the new way to delegitimize her as president, just like they delegitimized Obama.
0: It's interesting that this was the direct this was the election where everybody thought, oh, we figured out with advanced metrics and all this stuff, we know who's going to win every primary. We know we know who has a chance. We know who doesn't. And then 2016 comes along and throws that completely out of whack. Like 538 was saying Trump had no chance and it was going to, his support was going to fall apart as people kept dropping out. The opposite happened. Everybody thought uh, Clinton had Michigan locked up. was a 99% chance. Sanders wins. Yeah. And my thing is like, I don't even know if you can apply math to 2016. Just throw it out. It's, <laughs> it's too crazy.
2: It, this is like the equivalent of if you just found like, five guys on a playground and threw them in the NBA and they beat the Golden State Warriors. Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> right? like, like we all think we're like such experts and like we look at data and we have these complicated messaging and communication and social media strategies. And some guy who just like phones into a lot of cable shows and tweets out insane things. is like cleaning everyone's clock. And like, it makes you wonder like how valuable was all the stuff that campaigns have you know, spent all this money on really
1: is but doesn't it doesn't it make sense after the fact dan too it's like no one could predict it but now that it's happened you look and you're like oh, how did we miss this of course trump does well yeah right yeah. like in this country in this media environment yeah right? but i just thought I, I thought some of the things he said were so horrible that that would be it you know you right. think
0: like when the bridge thing happened to chris Christie, everybody was like that's it he can't win the election now that's that's too big of a scandal and, and trump's done like 20 things like that or yeah. said 20 things like that that had the same kind of impact and nobody it just bounces you on know, people I was,
1: think about that I imagine if imagine if Trump was in Christie's position on Bridgegate Trump would have come out and been like yeah yeah we had all kinds of corruption that's how I that's how I do things as governor that's how I make money like we just had to get stuff done who cares right
0: I'm sorry <laughs> that, I'll take accountability for that
1: yeah yeah those people had to weigh on the bridge they couldn't get to school I don't care whatever
0: <laughs> what would you guys tell I mean Sanders is still in this yeah You're working for Sanders. What would be the tactics for that? For trying to win the uh, the nomination? Oh man,
1: this is a tough. This is a tough one because he's he's in it, but the math at this point is almost making it impossible. Like you get to a point with the delegates where, like, for Sanders to get the nomination, I don't know what percentage of the delegates would he have to win from here on out. Like a hundred. It's
2: it's like seventy percent, I think. I mean. He's basically not mathematically eliminated, but he's like one game away from being mathematically eliminated. I mean, the best thing for Sanders to do is, like, if he, you know, I mean, one option would be to drop out and silly Clinton, but it seems unlikely he's going to do that, is just keep winning as many delegates as possible. And even if you're not going to win and get the nomination, uh, you know, he will at least, you know, can carry, you know, his message and, you know, try to drive the policy agenda. And I don't know, maybe he gets lucky and something, you know, happens but he's basically mathematically eliminated but what he's done is like pretty impressive given that he's a guy who's basically running vermont a couple times and that's it and he's taken hillary clinton not to the wire but you know made her work for it a lot more than she you know you would anyone would have thought
0: is there a scenario where she doesn't get the delegates either doesn't seem i don't think so no. yeah it seems like she's getting them she's getting them. so is he's just all- He's kinda of hanging around and waiting for another Clinton scandal to come out of nowhere, basically.
2: Yeah, He's, I think so. Yeah. Clinton kinda of did that to Obama. Like, we got to a point where in 08, where we basically had the delegates and there's no way she could have caught us, and she just kinda of hung around for another six weeks, you know, thinking that like something would happen and maybe she'd get a last shot at it and just kinda of played out it's, the string. It's I the
1: greatest six weeks of our things. lives. <laughs> yeah, it's right. We thought at one more it was like some point in April we woke up thinking like we are going to spend the rest of our lives running against Hillary Clinton in this primary, and nothing is ever <laughs> going to change. This is this is now purgatory.
0: <laughs> I remember that it it was like interminably long, where people were like, "She should drop out now." No, really, she should drop out. Now it's time you should drop out. Isn't it yeah. weird that you ended
1: up working with her though? Yeah, <laughs> it was bizarre. It's super weird. Yeah, that was one, when he when he selected her as Secretary of State. It was one of the more surprising moments. I like, I I, I couldn't believe it, but then it yeah, made I, sense. You know? yeah. I thought
2: someone was bullshitting me. Like, me too. <laughs> like, we were in the transition and, like, these crappy offices in downtown D.C. and we're, like, trying to find an interior secretary, the undersecretary for this. And, like, a reporter calls and says, we, we're, you know, we hear that, <laughs> that Obama's considering uh, Hillary to be Secretary of State. And I was like, well, I'll check that out. But that can't possibly be right. true. You know, and, you know, so, I mean, it, it was like, It was, it seemed insane at the time, but it ended up being, in addition to the fact that she was a great Secretary of State, so it was the right position for that, it was a, like, our lives were very different, that she was working with us instead of on the outside with everyday people going, is Hillary Clinton going to primary Barack Obama in 2012? You know, is she going to challenge him? Like, that would have been a political nightmare.
0: And everyone thinks she was a very good Secretary of State, right? Nobody. Is there a counter-argument to that?
1: No, there were no, there were no like secret battles in the White House or resentment or anything like that. It, it was, it's all real. People. And, liked her. and it seems
0: like Obama has genuinely enjoyed working with her for the most part.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: he definitely got, they got close. Like the, you spend a lot of time with Secretary of State because they travel with you around the world. So like when you know, we go on these like 10 day, two week foreign trips, she's there every day on the plane with us sometimes. And so you just spend a lot of time and they had a. Secretary of State had like a weekly one-on-one meeting, and I think there's no doubt that it was a little tense at first. You know, they kind of like were figuring the whole thing out. And you know, like you go through a campaign like that, and you build up a lot of like anger and competitiveness. But after a while, they, you know, he was very, um, like, like super appreciative of her, and very like nostalgic when she left in 20, in early 2013.
1: I mean, they're both they're both policy walks. And they both view the game of politics as bullshit. Yeah. Right? Like, it's and it, and in that way, they're both different than Bill Clinton. Like, Bill Clinton sort of loves politics. He yeah. loves the game. He's in it. He's fine. And Obama and Hillary both sort of have this ironic detachment from it and, and think that it's silly and sort of feel like you have to play it to get your agenda passed. And I feel like they bonded over that a little bit.
0: How many times during those first four years with Obama did he be like, come outside, let's talk. I'm going to have a sig in the Rose Garden. Come, come outside with me and let's talk about this.
1: Never seen it.
0: Never seen yeah, it. Never, you, never everyone's it sworn it. to secrecy. No. He claimed he hasn't smoked for like the last four or five years. I think that's right.
2: Yeah, I believe that.
0: I'm amazed that his wife let him smoke because it does seem like she wears a lot of the pants in the family. I don't think there was any letting. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he,
0: so he was sneaking around. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. In in eight years of working for the guy, I never saw him smoke one.
0: That's the Which thing. didn't
2: mean he didn't do it, but I never right. saw it.
0: That's a thing like with that, when people, especially as we head to the, la- the home stretch here, the Obama presidency, and nobody is going to really talk about the first lady transition. Oh,
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> but
0: there's a, you know... It's not a good chance, but it's not out of the question that we're going to go from Michelle Obama to Melania. Who, who Trump was on Howard Stern talking about the incredible size of her bowel movements. It was an actual conversation with them on Howard Stern. You can't believe how big these are. Yeah. And uh, Coming soon, America 2017.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but Michelle was like, what does she do? Where does she go? What happens to her? She did that. I asked Obama, does she, does she do a daytime talk show? Like, I can see anything with her.
1: I can't see her taking a very public role. Yeah. Um, just because I think, you know, she really loves her friends. She loves her. I think she misses her private life. Like, I don't think that she's looking to go out there and uh and be out in public a ton. I don't know. That's my sense. It could she she could surprise us. What do you think, Dan?
2: I think, I think she'll probably, like, there's a handful of issues that she works on in the White House. I think she'll continue in whatever sort of post-presidency life uh, they have together. She's such an interesting figure because, like, most people who end up in the White House, President and First Lady, like, spend decades getting there, right? They were, like, pretty normal people. Like, he was a state senator in Illinois, and she was a, you know, she worked in Chicago as an attorney. And then, like, all of a sudden, the president gives this speech at the convention, and then they're famous, and then, a year, like, two years later, they've moved into the White House. It's like they, they really got, like, teleported out of their, like, what she, what they expect to be a fairly normal, good life in Chicago, and all of a sudden you're First Lady. And it's, it's just such a different experience. And I think she will probably, and, and he will as well, to the extent possible, like, be kind of glad to get to as close back to what the life was like before that as possible.
0: Um, I want to talk about Obama's future But first I want to talk about Slack Which is the unofficially official Messaging app for the ringer So when you guys were in the White House
1: Uh, Also for Fenway Strategies
0: It's the best, Slack is the best When you guys are in the White House You're just exchanging all these emails And there's like giant, what, 100 email chains You're trying to figure out Uh, Our whole staff uses Slack We plan our newsletter with it We plan our website with it We plan our podcasting future with it We make fun of Tate Tate, the producer, would make fun of him. Uh, it's a it's a messaging app for teams. Instead of searching through hundreds of emails and texts, Slack brings your work communication into one place and radically increases transparency between teams. You felt that, Favs. I have. The transparency radically increases. Transparency. Your disjointed conversations will no longer be disjointed; <laughs> they become jointed, and uh, and your internal emails will be cut down by almost fifty percent. They also have nearly 100 integrations, including Dropbox, MailChimp, and Google Drive. Visit slack.com slash Bill Simmons and create a new team. You've got $100 in credit you can use when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. Slack.com. We really like it. Yeah. I, my my whole thing with emails i get so many emails and i'm on so many different chains it's just a pain in the ass to figure out where i am and slack i just go and there's the category and we go
1: dan let's move our chain to slack
0: yeah move your chain <laughs> to
1: slack do a private chain they have
0: the private thing i've noticed that yeah we I have a little family private thing it's good
1: uh <laughs> all right obama's
0: future so what happens to him next year what's he doing
1: what are that what are the you mean first? after after hillary nominates him to the supreme court Oh, <laughs> so I gotta, I, just, I
0: gotta give you credit. When I did the GQ thing, you told me to ask him that, and it was the only time I really, plant. I rattled, legitimately rattled him. I'm glad we did that. I figured it might <laughs> rattle him for yeah, like a split second. <laughs> You just got stabbed in trouble with the White House press office. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you I, I was like, Hey, what should I should I and you were like, Well, maybe ask him about this. I've never heard him talk about it. I hadn't. You didn't have inside I was, info. I was
1: curious as a citizen.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> and he paused and he hesitated and then went into
1: like Obama. Although corporate I, reading speak. reading what he said to you and knowing him, I could tell why he paused. And I don't think it was because he was thinking, "Oh, maybe I'll be on the Supreme Court." It's what he wanted to say was, "Of course not. I don't want to do that." But he didn't want to denigrate being on the Supreme Court. Oh, you—that was your takeaway. That was my take because what he said to you next was, "He's like, well, I have to think about this because it is such an important job, and it's you know, and and." It's important to the country and blah blah blah. So I think he didn't want to trash the Supreme Court as a job, but I think he wanted to tell you, "But that's not for me," you know, because the, yeah, that's a lot of just work and a it's lot of reading writing and stuff, writing. Yeah. And I don't think he like I don't think he wants to do that.
0: No, I think he's going to be in Hawaii in the Magnum PI house, just, <laughs> just driving around a convertible. What do you think he's going to do, Dan?
2: Look, he's like he'll do all. He's going to write a book for sure, and I think he will try very hard to write a book that different than like the typical you know post presidential memoir um because he like he does still think of himself as a writer um Mm. and like when he meets with writers like he thinks he's bonding with them like on a author level um i look i think there are things that interest him that i can see him like he'll have an array of um you know things like the my brother's keeper initiative for you know young men of color, and some other things he's doing in the White House, I'm sure he'll do. But the things that are interesting, very interesting to him are sports, like the whole media world and how people communicate. Like I could see him getting involved in that in some way. He's got like a lot of – there's some things that when you just start, like you're killing time, like on a plane or something, you just start talking, he has like deep thoughts on it. Like the media ecosystem and how people think is like very interesting to him.
0: Yeah, that was the one I I ran out of time because he, he you know he was definitely filibustering the first twenty five minutes. It took me a while to get him moving, mm-hmm. but I really wanted to ask him um, if you could change like three things about the media culture with politics. What would be the three things? How do we make the the media culture better with politics?
1: You would you would have had a filibuster there for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he
0: wouldn't have answered it. How would you guys have changed it? Having been through it.
1: Dan you go first since you're the you were you're the communications director. <laughs> What's the biggest flaw in the system right now?
2: I think the biggest flaw in the system is probably we confuse reporting and analysis now because because of Twitter, right? So everyone is an analyst always and they're and that's somewhat dangerous as there's not a place where people can go to get a lot of like just straight reporting. Yeah. And so it's like, it used to be pre-Twitter, right? There was this very fine line where, you, were, you know, you were either the reporter or the columnist. Or, you were the, or if you were, like, the big-time political reporter, you got to write an analysis column on Sunday. And so been, right now, it's just, like, all the people who would just be writing a story about what politician A said today are also providing analysis and don't necessarily always have, like, the background and perspective to do that. And that confuses, I think... It makes it very hard for people to just, like, find out what actually happened today, that day, as opposed to, like, what it means for the horse race and the poll numbers and all of that.
0: That's basically what's happened in sports. Yeah. There's no delineation now between somebody reporting something or somebody that thinks something might happen, you know? And I've done it, too. I'm like, hey, I'm hearing this. I'm not reporting it. It's just, hey, this is scuttlebutt that's floating around. My personal take is I think the decision with LeBron James was like the seminal moment for sports reporting. That was the first time people were just throwing shit out. Right? Hey, I'm here in the Knicks. And we're like, oh. And then it would be like four hours on ESPN, people talking about that. When do you think that happened in politics? It was somewhere during the Obama presidency, but I'm not sure where.
2: I think it was was when reporters got on Twitter.
0: Yeah. So you think it was like '09, 9 probably. So it was after the campaign because Twitter didn't yeah. take off to '09. Dan, don't you think yeah. it was when Politico started in
1: 2008?
2: Well, Politico, was, <laughs> well Politico definitely changed, like brought sort of like this ESPN mentality to sports where they're going to cover the game, not the substance. And yeah. most press probably covered the game too much, and, and but they wrapped themselves in this like glory of the fourth estate of we cover substance and we're going to educate the people and Politico was kind of like, f that. There's some audience of people who care just about the sport of politics, and we're going to really dig into that. And but I think once you got to Twitter, like for a regular reporter at the Washington Post and New York Times, they, there was an editor who was like, who would de- delineate whether something was analysis or had to meet some set of threshold before you could report it. And on Twitter, it's just people can just throw it out there all the time. And it took a, I don't even think pre- the press has really caught up to this that. Like, what you say on Twitter is probably more important than what you actually say in the paper. But the paper is all these, like, controls in place to keep you from doing, you know, crazy things or analysis you're not qualified for. But I, Twitter it's just, like, whatever you're thinking at that moment, you know, fire away.
1: I think that the speed of everything has also sort of eliminated a sense of perspective and a sense of history. So, yeah. like, we now don't – I mean – Everything seem, Everything that happens each day seems new and crazy and, oh, it's the n- weirdest thing that's ever happened. But then you don't... I mean, like, there was also violence and craziness at the McCain-Palin rallies in 2008. People were getting beat up and calling Barack Obama a terrorist and yelling yeah. treason and stuff like that. So. It's just like we forget certain things now because everything moves so fast that we don't have a sense of what's happened before. And that sort of warps our judgment and warps the analysis, too.
0: When you guys went through the, uh, the re-election campaign in 2012, what was the biggest difference you noticed from 2008? Other than that, you had the the leading candidate, obviously.
1: Yeah, well, the tough part was, I mean, we were also on the other side of the message, right? There was, we were, we were the incumbent and not the person saying, it's time to change. Right. <laughs> right? And so, that necessarily meant that we needed more of a contrast, right? That this is a choice between two visions. This isn't, that's not working, so try something new. I think that was the biggest, from the message perspective, that was the toughest part. What
0: do you think, Dan?
2: I think two things. One, like, election, the first election campaign is always like this glorious, cause and everyone's excited and reelections are always just like a grind. Like you were just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's by nature, less inspirational and exciting. Like from the, you know, how you deal with the media, like, you know, I don't want to keep harping on Twitter, but Twitter we didn't use in 2008 in any real way in 2012, like entire parts of the campaign were being litigated on Twitter 24 seven. And like, even in the first debate when Obama, uh, had a less-than-stellar performance, to say the least. Yeah. Like, had Twitter not, like, the way that would have played out pre-Twitter is there would have been some stories saying he didn't do well the next day, and maybe a poll came out that said he didn't do well. But, like, middle of the debate on Twitter, you know, it, another important thing to remember is, like, reporters used to just watch the debate all by themselves and not have any sense of how the rest of the world was reacting to it, and so they'd make their own analysis. They're all on Twitter, and so, like, when Andrew Sullivan and Chris Matthews basically committed ritual suicide over how bad Obama's um performance was everyone reacted to that and it took what was a bad performance and made it seem like the end of the world and so that like the instant reaction shaping things before they actually happen I think fundamentally changed how campaigns and probably you know maybe all entities sort of trying to push for something how they have to do de- how what their strategy has to
1: be? I noticed this from a speech writing perspective too. like two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, Obama would deliver these like primary night speeches, and there was an analysis live analysis going on during his speeches. So yeah. everyone would take it in, look at the audience, look at him, and say, "Okay, that was a good speech or a bad speech, whatever. Now, when someone gives a speech there's Twitter commentary during the speech and it's all cynical. And so it's that much tougher for someone to, for anyone to deliver a speech or deliver any kind of public statement that's impactful, inspiring, that that moves people because people just start tearing it down word by word on Twitter.
0: I think that's starting to fade a little bit. I mean, I think people are burned out from the cynicism and the snark and all that stuff. But where you see Twitter really jump in Um, well a couple things one is like when you have like the penis moment with Rubio and Trump and that just you know I I didn't watch that live and I checked my feed to see more what was going on with NBA than anything. And it was just a stream of penis tweets for like 15 minutes. I was like, what the hell just happened? I thought he pulled it out. I was like, Did he pull it out?
1: That's next week. And that's actually like
0: the great thing about Trump's campaign is that part of me wondered if he pulled his dick out in the debate. It, it would was, not it was be like, that surprising. I was like, I wouldn't have been blown away by this. But I do think people on Twitter follow mostly people who agree with how they think. Yeah. So it's this group consensus thing. And if it's going one way or the other and everybody is reinforcing what you thought, it almost makes it worse. I don't think people, follow, especially in politics, you don't follow everybody from all different things. In sports, you do. Right. I'm following Laker fans. I'm following Knicks fans. I'm following Heat fans. It doesn't really matter politics it does
1: i try to follow i follow a lot of republicans and conservatives and conservative media but
0: you're you're abnormal though i mean you yeah, you're you're a student of the whole culture right, i think most right. people just follow the people people read. that are like them you it's, know i think that's probably true. you probably do you hate follow some people
1: <laughs> yeah I do. i've tried to hate follow fewer people <laughs> okay because it was getting my blood pressure going dan I who just... do you hate follow oh you don't I... have the answer
2: I un- hate, like, there was everyone when I left the White House that I had to follow for my job yeah. that really annoyed me. I either unfollowed or muted. Like, like I'm retired now. Why do I need to, like, spike my blood pressure? Because Ron 48 is criticizing Barack Obama's leadership. The <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so Politico, they, they they do this stuff where they write the headlines a certain way when it's not really what somebody said. but Just to get the clicks. To get the clicks. That happened to me yesterday. Business Insider. What did they say? They did the Simmons declares war on ESPN. Oh, I, I said in a podcast yesterday, Joe House asked me why Brian, if I could have Brian Windhorst on. And I said, no, actually, this is so annoying. ESPN won't let ESPN people on, including people that I'm friends with. And it's like, oh, I'll get them back. I'm going to hire a public editor to write about ESPN. Where it, you know, it was humorous. And then it's like businesses our Simmons declares war on
1: ESPN. It's like, oh, my God, I can't win. Well, that, I mean, yeah, and. In fairness to Politico, they might have started that trend, but that's yeah, that's everywhere now. No, that's the sports the sports blogs and the regular blogs just, and all kinds
0: of different things. Yeah, you write a headline a certain way, and you try to get people to click on it. But I that, get The it. problem
1: is, is so many people aren't clicking because they don't have the time. So a lot of people are just getting their news from headlines. Right, right. So you can imagine what that does to people. Right, like yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes people only get their news from headlines or the Chiron on CNN or like the you know and and that is super dangerous because it's unbelievably like just wrong most of the time.
0: I got the feeling for even just from spending an hour with Obama and then like you know five or six shooting the shit minutes after. It seems like he's about done with all this. He's just <laughs> ready, he's ready to move on. Ready to to uh, get out of this whole cycle of the way things work.
1: I in some ways I, I mean I think he's I I think he'll always be interested in it, though. Like, I think he wants to take a break, right? I think he wants to step back and take it. But I don't think he'll be... I think it'll be harder for him to cut off, cut all this off than he thinks. Because, like you said, once you get him going, once you get him talking about some of this stuff, whether it's politics or media, whatever, like, he gets very passionate about it. And, Dan, you
0: you know this more than anyone. He used to love when people would come visit, when the teams came, the championship teams. Like, that's probably the part... That's probably that's got to be the most fun part of the job, and that's the stuff like once you're not present, the presidential dinner, mm-hmm. trying to be. I mean, he's probably the funniest president we've ever had. Oh, yeah. We're yeah, the yeah. first president who's been able to go on the dais and and actually like make funny jokes, and you know, he's an above average comic. He presence. deliver his
1: delivery is quite good. Yeah, really good. Yeah, like he always. I mean, we all come up with jokes, and we have outside comedians that send in stuff, and um, but almost every year at the correspondence dinner he his delivery has made the jokes funnier.
0: Yeah. We we'll just wait till next year with President Trump.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> People storming out. That's, this is terrible. Here's our, I'd like to introduce our our host Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> uh, Dan, when did you leave?
2: In a year ago basically, like a year ago this
0: week. And what what were the first like 6 weeks like?
2: I got on a plane and I flew to Asia and traveled around for six weeks and did not like read a newspaper or paid no attention to what was happening and it was like pure bliss
0: did they have Asia Politico there or no?
2: <laughs> if they did I, I couldn't read it
0: and when did you leave Favs? like
1: 2013? March of
0: 2013
1: yeah and we I, I, I left and, and Tommy Vitor and I started our, our business right away in Ben Schwerin right Fenway Strategies yeah and, uh, you moved,
0: and you eventually moved here
1: and then I moved here about a year later yeah, the, the year living in Washington where I wasn't working in the White House was that was when it was a signal it's time to get out of here.
0: Well you guys were kind of for lack of a better word, local celebrities. Like people would write about you and you'd be at a bar and not, it always, might, in a, not always in a
1: good way. Not always in a good way.
0: <laughs> there was there was you you were covered to some degree because you were like the young kind yeah. of people in Obama's cabinet.
1: Yeah. Which is a very Washington thing. Right. It's like at some point. I mean, I I, I love my time in D.C. I was there for 10 years, but uh, except for the couple of years I spent in Chicago. But when I left it, it was time to leave because it's a very small city. It's it like feels, Boston. It feels like high school. It's
0: very small and very gossipy, and very, everyone knows what everyone else's business is. Yeah,
1: it's like it's, but it's like if Boston was a company town. Yeah, right. If everyone worked in the same industry. Yeah, uh, and that's what Washington is. So you can only you can only handle that for so long.
0: Where'd you guys live in Washington?
1: Uh, I was at Sixteenth and R, so that was like between Logan and Dupont circles. But that was pre-Uber though. Uh, last couple years, yeah, U- Uber.
0: Uber could have been bad for both of you guys. <laughs> Uber's like, ah, I'll have one more.
1: I'm not driving. <laughs> we could walk a lot of places. That's what yeah, we walked all the way. Yeah, that's Walking DC. City. So it sounds like you miss it, but you don't miss it. I don't miss it. I miss, I miss, miss I miss my friends who are still there, but I don't yeah. I don't miss anything else about it.
2: You miss the. I thought like there's sort of two paths for people who leave the White House. Like one is you go into like depression. You know, you're just like, why am I no longer important? Why is no one emailing me? Right. Like, you know, why you know, no one recognizes me on the street anymore. And then the other one is like, oh, there's this whole world out here, like, of a life and sleep and friends and family. And I was pretty convinced I would be on the depressed side and it was the exact opposite. Like, I miss the people, but there's that has really hasn't been a moment where I was like, Man, I really wish I was there for that. Even the good thing. Because when you've been inside, you like you know, like today, the Supreme Court, like, validated healthcare. care. Everyone I knew out here in Francisco was like, don't you wish you were there? Don't you wish you were there? And I was like, no. I remember the 1,000 meetings that would have led to just, like, that moment. Like, I was pretty glad to, like, sleep in and see friends. And, you yeah. know, like, it's a great experience when you come to a moment when you're like, the key is to leave, like, one day before you're burned out, right?
0: Did you see that with some people that you, you knew they stayed like six, seven months too long and you could kind of see they were fried?
2: Totally. Yeah. And sometimes they'd want to leave, but the president wouldn't let them because they were yeah. in the middle of something that was like important or like they were trying to pass health, like they they were going to be there until we pass health care or something else. And that just went like six months or a year longer. And they're just like dragging. And it's easier for people like Thabs and I, because we don't have kids. For the yeah. people with kids, it's brutal, right? right. It's like they don't see their children. They don't, you know, they have to miss stuff all the time. They, if they get out and get to like the soccer game or whatever else, they're on their BlackBerry the entire time. Yeah, yeah it's pretty hard.
1: But it was also like, the President would always say it's a family-friendly White House. Yeah. And my thing was, I was not going to have a family to be friendly to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I if I stayed there any longer, because all my twenties were campaigns and politics and White House, and it's like at some point you have to have a real relationship and grow up and get a family, and um, you can't. It's hard to do that when you're in that job
0: what was the lowest moment when you were there where you just felt like the just everybody that worked for them were just collectively bummed out devastated or just depressed
1: the one that comes to mind that was early on was the oil spill right or <laughs> the oil spill because it was some, sort of like the first cr- like crisis that happened to us that that we could not control you know and like the president had you know every engineer and scientist all over the world trying to fix this thing and couldn't. And so, in the corner of every cable news station every day for thirty days was a picture of this oil spilling out into the Gulf of Mexico, and people were saying it's the end of Obama's presidency. He can't do anything about it. This is his Katrina. He's Jimmy Carter. And sort of the first time in the like you realize, hmm, maybe this isn't going to go so well.
0: What about you, Dan?
2: Was the day that Scott Brown won the Massachusetts oh, Senate seat because that's... you know we had basically healthcare was ready to go, we were gonna get it passed, and then we lost a Ted Kennedy Senate seat, mm. which was like the which meant we were gonna have to basically start all over again. And like I remember like we all sort of like sheepishly walked into the Oval Office the day afterwards and you know, the president was clearly displeased. Because, like, basically he had fought so hard to get health care. And then, like, we, if a Democrat came with a Massachusetts Senate seat, like, what are we doing, right? And he kind of, like, we go through, like, our daily advisors meeting with him. And after a while, he kind of looks at us. And he's, like, not really – you can tell he's got that look of, like, I'm not going to yell at you, but I'm pretty annoyed about this. And he says – he finally, like, looks at us and says, you know, why don't we do this? Like, why don't I try to, you know, fix the economy – figure out what we're doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, pass care. Can someone else be in charge of winning the Massachusetts Senate race and kind of like got up and walked out we we're like, yeah, that was a mistake.
0: Mm. That, I mean, in retrospect, could you have delivered the message better in a smarter way to the public? Just like how hard it is to do that job when, when you're a Democrat and the Republicans have control of so many yeah. other things. Do you feel like that message was delivered well enough?
1: Obama would certainly say there was a better way to deliver it. <laughs> yeah. But what's the what's the way, though?
0: Because you don't want to sound like you're whining the whole time, right? So there's got to be some balance between, hey, man, I'm doing the best I can versus, ah, I can't get anything yeah, done. Yeah, because,
1: well, this is why it's so hard. It's like you can complain about the opposition, but then it sounds like you're complaining about the opposition. Right. And they sort of knew that. That was their strategy, right? They're like, if we deny him... Any bipartisan cooperation whatsoever then all of his promises that brought him to office about being bipartisan will look phony. Right. And that's okay. all we have to do. We just have to keep saying no.
2: Right. There's no question like we could have our message or should figure out on healthcare and things like that Our message could have been like tighter and we could have been more disciplined about it. and there were certainly more clever ways to deliver it in a more targeted way to like get through the you know White House press corps filter and all of that. But sometimes, like, it's not, like, the bigger thing is not, like, ha- not your communication strategy. It's the fact that there's, like, 10% unemployment in the country. Like, we don't have, there's not some secret plan to make people feel better about that. But, like, we, you know, it's interesting that, like, we, like, the t- Obama's time in the White House, like, dovetails with, you know, as media and the Internet and everything is changing in this dramatic way. And, like, you know, we tried to stay at that curve as much as possible. Sometimes we are ahead of him. Sometimes you fall behind. And, like, you you, you know, the old, the old ways of doing things just are all of a sudden inoperative, and you didn't really sort of get it. Like, when he started running for president, like, the iPhone didn't exist. Facebook was barely around. Like as you point out, Twitter's not around. And so you look at where, like, how people, you know, how journalism is and how the people learn information now compared to when he started. Like, it's been – it's probably, like, the greatest period of change since, like, the –
0: telegraph or something. Yeah. I totally agree. And I and I said this to him. I think people are gonna remember him as the social media president. Not him, but just that was the presidency when in two thousand eight, as you said, no iPad, barely Twitter, yeah. no Instagram, Facebook was for kids, adults really weren't using it that much yet. No Snapchat, all this stuff. And now we're a techno- we're the technology society. Yeah. And it all happened during his presidency. I mean,
1: I think Dan realized when he was communications director that at some point, the traditional media filters are broken. They've broken down. They're covering yeah. analysis and all that kind of stuff. And so you just try to find ways to go around them, right? Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or any of these other interviews that the president has done. And, you know, like maybe we could have done that earlier in the presidency, but I don't even know if they existed that, well, then. Right? Yeah, so it was 2009, 2010. So you just couldn't do it. But, I mean, if you look at Trump's candidacy now, the, the networks and the media can say all they want about Trump, but Trump has however many millions of followers on Twitter and Facebook, and he just communicates directly with them that way. Yeah. You know? And I think future presidents and future candidates are going to use, are going to go around the media to communicate directly to voters.
0: Yeah. Like Facebook's pushing their, their Facebook Live so hard right now. What would stop one of these candidates from just doing a Facebook Live That's interaction right. with whatever? And this the is a totally pre- different And world. the
1: press will go nuts.
0: Oh, it'll go crazy. Yeah. But it'd actually be a really smart move. Yeah. Be a good move for Rubio because he he could uh, he could make the camera grainy. You won't see how sweaty he is, how much water he needs. <laughs> All right, um, we got to wrap up. So give me um, give me a prediction. So we it sounds like you guys think Trump versus Clinton is we're headed toward that unless something crazy happens on the floor of the Republican convention.
1: I, I will say Trump versus Clinton. Uh, I, I'd be sh- more sure of that after Tuesday because I think if Trump wins Florida on Tuesday. Then I think it's very hard. To it's take. a wrap. I think it's a wrap. What do you think, Dan?
2: I think that's right. I think that we'll, I think the most likely scenario is Trump. I think it's by far the most likely scenario. And if he loses Florida, Ohio, or both, the chances of like a House of Cards style contested convention will go way up.
0: Mm-hmm. I think Clinton wins, obviously. And I think we, I think it comes down to the convention. And I don't, I don't think we know. I could see somebody who's not running right now win. I would vote for that over Trump winning. I mean, just like as a prediction. The white knight? It might not even be a white knight. It just might be somebody dressed like a knight. (laughs) But I just think it's, I think we're going to go to that convention and I think it's going to be one of the craziest. I don't know. It'll be all time. Stay
1: away from Cleveland in July. Have (laughs) Have you watched
0: like the, uh, it would be a really good documentary actually, the the seventy six one.
1: I've seen some clips recently, but it I haven't was cordial,
0: seen... but it wasn't cordial, and then it got nasty, but then it was kind of cordial near the end, and and you know, finally they settled on Ford, but well the it's one it's gonna look more like
1: could be sixty eight in Chicago, the Democratic Convention, which yeah. sort of erupted into violence. Yeah, that wasn't great. That was I, not that bad. would be our worst case scenario. That's bad. But that's that's the way these people are at these rallies right now, that's what I'm more scared of. All right.
0: You can follow uh John at uh John Favs, J O N F A V S at Twitter, and uh Dan Pfeiffer. That's your whole name on Twitter, right? Yep. Okay. Thanks to Betterment. It's the best way to invest for your future. Save yourself time and money and do it for a fraction of the cost of traditional investment services. Betterment is already managing billions of dollars for over one hundred thousand customers. You could be next. Get up to six months of free automated investing and more information when you go to betterment.com slash BS. Thanks to Slack. We all like Slack. Uh, thanks to HBO. Now you don't need cable or satellite to watch HBO anymore. Download the HBO now app and start your free one month trial today and, uh, go to the ringer.com to sign up for our new newsletter that launches on Monday. Oh, thanks to SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor. Uh, did you guys sign up for our newsletter yet? No, go to the ringer.com, sign up for the newsletter. Yeah. Monday. Yeah. Oh, you signed up. That's nice of you guys. Um, this was fun. This is really fun. We've never Thanks done right we've never done two in the studio, but then the third on the phone. I thought it actually worked pretty well. Worked great. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. We about this bitch. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here. Close your eyes and picture me rolling.